0: Hey, welcome to the Afikta podcast. Today's episode features a conversation between me, Mikey Imhenna, and our special guest, Saad Al-Amri. Saad is a personal hero of mine. She's known the world over for her work in the world of architecture, poetry, writing, and she may as well be a stand-up comedian. This episode was first recorded on Zoom on September 17th. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, our special guest today is Saad Amiri. Uh, Who's a Palestinian writer activist and architect She studied architecture at the University of Beirut, the University of Michigan, and the University of Edinburgh, receiving her PhD from the last institution. Amiri has published a wide array of books, including Sharon and My Mother-in-Law, which has been translated into nearly 20 languages and was awarded the prestigious 2004 Via Reggio Prize. She's the founder and former director of Riwa, Center of Architectural Conservation, which was awarded the very prestigious Aga Khan Award for architecture in 2013. Saad, thank you so much for joining Africa Conversations.
1: Sure, thanks so much, Mikey. Really, I'm honored to be on this.
0: Saad, before I get started with sort of some of the by things about you, when somebody looks into your work, they're struck by the fact that you've had these three careers. Um, One focused on activism, one focused on architecture, and one focused on writing. How do you manage to sort of thread those different strands do you see them as one one path or three very different paths
1: well so far mike you should say so far i had three lives because i'm intending (laughs) to have another two (laughs) (laughs) listen when when i was a kid my mom used to say you jump into the ocean then you ask whether you know how to swim or not uh, I think my limit of doing something is maximum 10 years. Then I turn around completely and jump into something else uh, by pure accident or by intention. So yeah. uh, that's how I ended up three lives. But really, I am very good in just uh, feeling enough and move, moving on without looking like I'm being scared. So not being scared of, lo- lo- of leaving something is the secret to it.
0: Yeah. So this um, helps me just make one quick story that I'd like to tell is that you not being scared was the first thing I noticed about you because you and I met five years or six years ago when you walked into my apartment in Brooklyn in 2015 to attend one of the very first Africa's unaccompanied you just wandered in and said i think this is where i'm supposed to be and you sat down on the couch <laughs> and completely transformed the evening and very much inspired what the next six years have been Well, well how many people are you inspiring i mean like you are you're the consummate educator how do you you know what is your who were the early teachers in your life who sort of set that example for you
1: uh okay my dad is one of them actually my dad taught me something i always 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 repeat my dad told me listen sir, do what you love don't do anything for anybody do it because your dad wants it or mom you wants it just do it from the heart and i remember him saying if you want to go out to have uh, sell falafel sandwiches that's exactly you want to do, just go out and do it. Uh, I, my dad has influenced me a great deal. It's boring to so also my mom because was this. Uh, that's what I learned from. She, uh, she did not fear a thing. And then there was a professor of architecture at uh, Beard, uh, AUB um, that I uh, professor Khouri that I liked. He was very out of the box actually um so these are the people that influence um, you know about uh, i must tell you that i am influenced by for example i am influenced by young people i uh, don't have masters every day i could be influenced by a gardener who is very good so i look around myself and see people i am influenced by people who are hardworking. yeah i think how work from the heart is what what guides basically
0: Can you um, give a little biographical context? So you spent your early childhood between uh, Amman, mostly Amman and Damascus, um, and then you moved to Beirut for um, university. What was that move like? Mm. Go ahead.
1: Well, uh, actually, my dad's from Jaffa, my mom from Damascus, we became refugees, my family came to refugees in 1948, and they lived in Jordan, and I grew up in Jordan, and Jordan at that time was a very little man, was a small town, maybe still a small town. And I recall going to, I was so excited to be accepted at the University of Beirut. And I recall when I got to Beirut, really, even though I have seen Beirut as a kid, because my mom, Damascus, we were swimming, uh, going to our aunts in Beirut. But going to Beirut in 1970, Beirut, I think, was its golden age. Uh, It was like the capital of the Arab intellectualism. And it reminded me of going to New York later. Uh, Really, Beirut was a very, very, very special place for me. It exposed me to... Uh, many things. AUB was and still is a great university, but I think also there was a lot of politics uh, at AUB at that time and Uh, the whole Arab world was there and I always felt Arab and I think that identity of being Arab and meeting Yemenis, Iraqis, Sudanis at the university, but also in Beirut, sort of uh, uh, affected me tremendously tremendously, yeah. but also Beirut in the 70s was a lot of political and a lot of tension and a lot, uh, uh, but for me, really, Beirut and AUB, when, when people ask me, where do you graduate from? I always say from the American University of Beirut. Forgive me, University in Michigan, at Edinburgh, but I always say from Beirut.
0: <laughs> you know, I heard in an interview that you gave, um, you you talked about really f- sort of um, uh, a, a part of your Palestinian identi- identity really matured and sort of yeah. uh, was birthed when you were at AUB. Can you talk a little bit about that and why yeah, and how, actually what was it happening in the early 70s? A
1: little bit For Let me say the following, that okay. my I grew up really into cities. I always say that the city which had a great influence on me was Damascus because my mom's from Damascus as a child. We used to go to so Hamadiya, Bukdash, Haririya. All the, really, Damascus leave impact, a great impact. Uh, Java left an impact completely different. It's the absence of Palestine, the absence of Africa, the absence of something mm-hmm. in my life. So I grew up with meeting uh, what Palestine looks like. I had mentioned from a distance. Uh, so These two cities played a very important role for me as a kid. And I remember for the longest time, actually, even though I knew my father was Palestinian, growing up in Jordan, I thought I was Jordanian. And I must say, my father was not a big nationalist and was was not so religious, so I, uh, for him, Palestine was a cause rather than a nationality. But I remember very well in 68, when the PLO, whether we like the PLO or not, whether we like Araf or not today, but I have to acknowledge one thing about the PLO, it is the, the organization that made us feel proud that we are Palestinian. And I remember I was maybe 10th grade or 11th grade. And when the teacher came in to ask who is not Jordanian because of fees, something to do with fees, I stood up and she said, what happened to you? I said, I am Palestinian. She said, okay, sit down, sit down. Um, but, but that I remember the day when I stood up and I said, I am Palestinian. That was in 68. Was ca- coming to A.E., 1917, U.B. was a big, big... Uh, Um, student revolution, uh, student movement at AUB, where we occupied the president's office, and there was, you know, name it, the Communist Party, Democratic Front, all the Libyan parties. So it was very, very enriching. It started, it was triggered in Jordan, and then it was nourished in uh, in uh, beirut and i remember in beirut actually being the student we were asked to go and teach in the refugees camps in, uh, in beirut and i remember going there yeah. to teach them english and they used to make fun of me the, the butcher would come and the carpenter would come and you know, You know, a little girl, they will always, I remember one one of them saying, what is fascia? What is fascia in English, which is the lungs? Anyway, Mm. it was great time. I flourished in Beirut. That's when I remember intellectually and
0: politically. So um, I'm very curious about, and, and not only curious, I'm inspired by your decision in 1981 to move to Ramallah. Um, Mm, mm, mm. what inspired that decision why did you choose um, to make you know build a life there
1: yeah well, I always say my life is a sequ- sequence of uh, accidents, actually. <laughs> of course, as a Palestinian, Palestine is always part of your think of your being, of this or that. But I didn't. I, I wanted to do a PhD. I want to research on Palestinian village architecture. And I remember very well that I asked a friend from Palestine to me a permit. As you know, as cannot get there. I got a permit to go there for six months to do some field work for my PhD. Hmm. And I went around the village of, also I went around Palestine. It's the first time ever that I went to Palestine in 82. I did not, Mike, I tell you, I did not know a single person in Palestine. I remember very well arriving to Jerusalem. And my mother thought I was crazy. And of course I'm crazy. My mother said, you know, nobody there. They're going to think of you as a collaborator, coming from outside. So anyway, I end up going to MCA. I recall that day, you know, throwing my bag in the hotel and just walking into the old city. Of course, I had images as a child because my dad used to take us to Jerusalem. But I went there not knowing a single person. I remember I rented a car and I started going around wow. to all villages, cities, and making an archive, God. Thank God, I still have our walk in 1981, and I said, "That's it. That's it. I found my place, and it just happened that I." And also find uh, my love <laughs> I yeah. fell in love in Palestine and I ended up asking Birzeit University to give me a teach there and this is how I ended up staying in Palestine since 1981 but I remember the day when I crossed the bridge I've never in my life seen an Israeli never 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 and the permit was in Hebrew so it was the most dramatic experience you can have by the time I I got to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I could not believe it. Uh, so here I am. Yeah. Uh, the uh, s- six uh, months um, uh, permit ended up to be 40 years in Palestine.
0: So um, well, there's so much to talk about that I'm going to try to jump from topic to topic because there will yeah, be yeah, more questions sure. in the Q&A. So you, by training, your first sort of training I should say, is as an architect and urban planning. And in 1991, you, you started Riwa, um, which has now sort of grown into this really amazing, um, impactful institution that focuses not only on preservat- uh, preserving sort of beautiful, prestigious buildings, but more importantly, preserving uh, villages and functional, fun- functional architecture and urban planning. Can you sort of talk about the vision for the organization? Yeah, sure. How that vision may have changed over time? Sure. And specifically the yeah, 50 well, village I've, project, which is amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I got that in, in 81, and in the few years I collected, I, I got to know a lot about uh, the villages. I did my PhD on the villages. Uh, so in '91, actually, during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, I was thinking that Palestine needs something to protect uh, these villages. Mm. Do you have to remember, Mike, the Israelis destroyed 420 Palestinians' uh, villages during 48 and 58 uh, and 52. So I felt the need that we need to protect our cultural heritage. And we started with what we call registration. We had, uh, we had registered, we did a national registration to know what we have, we ended up with three books uh, with fifty thousand buildings. we know about fifty thousand buildings slowly, slowly we started feeling the need to protect these buildings, so we moved from arriving into protection of single buildings and we went to the villages we want to make sure that these are not gentrified areas meaning that the people who live in the villages are the main beneficiary of those villages so we started doing cultural centers in these villages we did almost 130 cultural centers in palestine in all of the most of the villages around And then we realized it's not enough to just make uh, one building in one village. It doesn't leave leave an impact. Eventually, we decided that we want to protect. We cannot protect the 420 villages. We need to protect uh, the most valuable ones, the ones that have a fabric, they have a life in them. So we ended up with something called the, the 50 village project that we started in 2007 and we are still on it. We need. We started doing the whole village, uh, you know, the infrastructure, the community center, playgrounds. We conserve the whole village, and we are um, um, uh, working together with the NGOs that exist in that villages. But Mike, what made the project very successful is the following: in nineteen, uh, in two thousand, uh, Sharon Eric Sharon had decided that they don't want any workers coming into Israel, they don't want to hire Arabs, they ended up with a big, big unemployment. One third of the population woke up one day without any job. And as a result, we at Rewak started thinking, you know, we have to think of people rather than of the stone. We want to um, create jobs. And we did a kind of a shift in our thinking in yeah. conservation that the jobs, the projects were job creation. Uh, we have asked the contractors to hire a lot of workers from the village. We train the village villagers. We train the architects from the village. So really it became more of a community-oriented program where they feel that they benefit from it. Because at the beginning we used to go there and give lectures about history and the importance of cultural heritage. And really nobody cared. But the moment they, that their kids, their young men are benefiting from these projects, whether we do a lot of women projects, Project, children's projects, computers, cinema. Also we do work cultural centers in Palestine. Like El kamen we have created maybe 12 centers musical centers with all kinds of culture. So I think the secret of it is job creation, but also uh, creating spaces for change we actually always do community centers, we do playgrounds, we do spaces where people can meet and talk, but also we do housing, we do housing. We tell people whatever budget you put, we put uh, equal amounts matching. Uh, So the 50 villages actually have become a big success. So far we have finished almost 20 villages we still have 30 villages to go, uh, but uh, I must say it's not an easy work, but it is a very satisfactory work.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, for me, I find that to be really inspiring, this idea that um, in a previous interview, you mentioned this, uh, occupation is really an economic strategy. It's an, um, it's an economic strategy to impoverish Palestinians. And what you're trying to do is to counteract that. And it's not about, preserving pretty buildings. It's about preserving economic, uh, uh, sort of- Creating a- jobs, basically. And acti- yeah, exactly. Which and I think training. is Yeah, and I don't think that that story is usually told. It's usually, when we think about preservation, it's let's uh, maintain pretty buildings as opposed to maintaining the way of life and the way of work
1: yeah, yeah it 's very true, also, as architects, we have always been thinking you know architects think about materials, about stones, about design, about we don 't think of people. I must yeah. tell you, we are not trained to think of people we think that we we, we know the diffi- most difficult part of rework was also training ourselves to listen to the villagers what they need wh- how they how they do it. Uh, also to convince them, working together with them so they see the difference, you know, when you come to a village and it's almost a garbage dump, and then in in a month, two, six months they see how it transformed Uh, now they believe in us. at the beginning it was very difficult to convince them, but now I can tell you the list of waiting, lists that we have from different villages, actually now they say, why do you do this village and not our village, Mm. and also Mike, the other thing is we make them pay a to 20 percent because sometimes if they get something for free they don't value it not because yeah. we want the 15 or 20 percent
0: what is before i move on to your writing um what has been some of the major challenges that were unexpected that you didn't see coming um uh, in,
1: in, other... yeah uh Mm, The most uh, frustrating thing really is uh, that the national government does not put it as a priority. Mm. You know, in Palestine, we're always under pressure, either for education, for health, health education, and the basic, you know, feeding people. Uh, Also, the development, new developers, as you know, the private sector is very strong, very strong. And many times the municipalities ally with the private sectors against us. In other words, the, all in all of the Middle East, the historic centers are only built on half percent of the area of the town. Uh, so we always argue with them, like build 99% of the Harabish that you think they are wonderful, you know, high rise and what have you, and leave us this half percent. Uh, I find the private sector is the most aggressive and it's very difficult for us to, we haven't so far convinced the private sector that there is an economic and cultural potential because people don't look at the long term what it means to preserve these historic cities. Uh, you know, like when you go to Europe or you go to Tunisia, you always look for the historic center to, to yeah. go there. They haven't grasped that, that yet. Uh, the potential of economic, uh, economic development and social development in conservation.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, I want to talk a little bit about your writing. Um, in 2003, you became an accidental author. Um, and you tell that story better than I could tell. Uh, ask you. So could you sort of tell the story of Sharon and my mother-in-law and how you sure. accidentally became a world-renowned author?
1: Okay, I'll tell you something before that, Mike. I, always, I, I wanted to be many things in my life. You know, I wanted to be... A, a, I love animals, so I wanted to be a vet. I am a Hakawati. I want to get on the theater, uh, yeah, you know, I am. Uh, my dad told me you uh, should be a lawyer because the judge will be tired of you and you will win all the cases. <laughs> the one thing in my life that I never thought about was really becoming a writer, partly because I am dyslexic. You know, many of us architects we go to architecture, we go to art because we are dyslexic and we don't re- We don't read. We only look at photos, basically.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, dyslexic so, too. <laughs>
1: You are, huh? So you understand me. So really, I did not think of becoming a writer. And it was by pure accident, pure accident, that in 2003, the Israelis reopened Allah. And I was living on my own. And I had a a mother-in-law who was 91 years old, who was as stubborn as I am. She was living on her own. And I ended up uh, bringing my mother-in-law to come and live with me at her curfew for 44 days. And it was hell. I must tell you, it was hellish, <laughs> like all the daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws. Uh, we gave each other hard time and the Israeli army outside was giving us also hard time bombarding. So what I used to do is a kind of therapy, really writing. I found out writing is exactly like the design. It was a way of uh, therapeutic for me. At the end of the night, when my mother-in-law went to her bed, I sat down and wrote a story about us, she and I, uh, making fun of the situation. And when we went out, the Israelis let us out, I wrote a story, a sad story, actually, about what the Israelis have done to us about everyday life. But there were emails. I didn't think that, I wasn't thinking of a book. I wasn't thinking of a writer, of a reader. And maybe that was the strength of the book, ultimately they got to an Italian friend of mine. She sent them to a publisher and that publisher sort of liked them. And uh, God knows, you know, I've been working on Palestine for so so many years. And then all of a sudden I'm going all over the globe talking about my mother-in-law and Sharon. Sharon and my mother-in-law. And uh, um, that's the one book that sort of uh, made it. And uh, this is how I became a writer. And uh, another thing, Mike, uh, because I am a Hakawati, I never made the connection between being a Hakawati and a, ri- a riwaye or hikaye. I always thought, yes. being dyslexic, that writing is about grammar, about uh, good language. I wasn't thinking that really writing is about having a good story to tell. And that's yeah. how Writing's I became about a writer. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the things that uh, is... It's true about all of your work really in in any one of the work, any sort of the the domain is you don't romanticize things. And I've seen this and um, I feel like I'm the same way. And when I was looking at your work, I loved it because you're so focused on the life. You're not focused on, there's no nostalgia. There's no romance. There's it's, it and it's loving it's not romantic but it's loving and yeah is have you always been that way have you have you noticed that about yourself
1: Well, I can tell you that I am interested uh, a lot in the details. Uh, For example, I am not interested in um, uh, what makes a big cliche in the newspaper or on television. I am not interested in noble architecture. I can tell you everything I did in architecture is very similar to what I did in writing. There is a lot of similarity. It's a way of life of talking about... what all ordinary people, but they are no way ordinary in a way, you know? Yeah. So, for example, in Sharon, of my mother-in-law, actually my mother-in-law, whom I made fun of her, was the hero of the book. Yeah. Um, Murad Murad, uh, and a Palestinian worker, uh, is a hero of my book. So... I find that there are lots of people that we can learn a lot, a lot, a lot from, and these are the people that interest me. These are the stories that interest me. I am not yeah. interested neither in rich people, nor in, in, a, in a president, nor in act on an actor, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just find that if we pay attention to little details, uh, I love gardening, I love animals, so I find like my pleasure is really in... Uh, if you want to call them mundane things small is beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the reason why I'm asking, and this is a selfish reason, is that I've always said that I live in Beirut and I've always said that I'm not romantic about Lebanon, but I love it. And and I of course and I was wondering, looking are you romantic about Palestine?
1: no actually you know what okay as you said you're very good you put it very nicely you love something but you don't have to romanticize it but also you don't have to defend it all the time actually you have to be very critical of the things you love uh, and i think it's uh, it's uh, we are doomed if we um we talk positively just about uh, being a nationality or a city or a religion or 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 i am totally against this i think i believe in being a human being first of all i think we as human beings have so much to share and often i feel that religion and nationality and all of the above make us less human and then they make us very limited in our thinking so for me really palestine is a cause not because it is uh, Uh, So poverty is a cause, women is a cause, there are lots of causes uh, that I care about, and uh, uh, we have to be critical of the things we love, otherwise uh, we will lose it.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, so I, I want to. I want you to tell the story briefly before we move into the quick Q and A about uh, nothing to lose but your life. Because um, uh, I think it's a really powerful story, and it's one that I wasn't aware of um, before prepping for this interview.
1: Okay, Mike. I tell you, I'm I'm very happy about this question because uh, listen, always you ask the reader, you ask the, re- the reader, what is the book that you read and influenced your life. But you never ask a writer, what is the book that you wrote and influenced mm-hmm. your life? And in my case, like, okay, many people like Sharon and my mother-in-law or this or that. But for me, my best, my the book that I adore is really uh, Nothing to Lose But Your Life, or it's called sometimes Murad Murad. Uh, okay, this is a story about myself accompanying... Uh, I don't know how many of you are aware that many of the Palestinian workers have to gain a living. And unfortunately, West Bank and Gaza, we don't have enough jobs. So people end up going and working in Israel. When the Israelis built the wall, the apartheid wall, almost uh, 150,000 Palestinian workers could not get to their jobs, lost their jobs. And to get to their jobs, they had to walk all night long and sort of sneak into Israel to make a living there. And so I had a a worker come to work in my garden, his name is Murad and he told me atrocities about what how the workers what they have to go through to get a job in israel he described it to me in such a way that i said oh my god i live in ramallah and i consider myself i know about palestine i knew nothing about the life of workers so what i decided to accompany the workers overnight and see what they go through so what i did is i were i pretended to be a man I wore my husband's clothes. I put a, a, I put a hat and I uh, covered myself as much as possible for them to think that I am a man. And I went to a village at 11 o'clock at night and I joined 24 workers from, one, from their village. Uh, they wanted to go to, the, uh, to Israel, uh, which is if there was a car, normal thing, you could do it in half hour. Actually, we had to walk 18 hours uh, from uh, almost 11 uh, at night. I started until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We were 24 workers. Uh, we, uh, they arrested some. They shot at some. By the time we got to work, the place where they wanted to work, we were only four I and three others, all the rest were arrested. And it wasn't the only 24, there were hundreds of Palestinian workers that have been arrested. The idea is how hard the Palestinians have to work, how much they have to, um, their life is threatened, they could be shot, they could be put in prison, but at the end of the day, they have to feed their kids. And that trip I did with these workers was really amazing, really amazing. I learned so much of it. And Murad especially, he's 21 years old, a young man who is hardworking. He symbolizes all um, what Palestinians want in life. Uh, and he had a t- has a tough life. For me, going 18 hours with these young workers across, walking in the middle of the night, being shot at, we had to run, come back, run, come back, was just amazing, really. It's the most dangerous trip I ever did m- in my life. I didn't tell anybody before that I wrote the book, but also it was the most... Um, wonderful experience that I ever had in my life, learning from these young boys.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, yeah, you continue to amaze me. Um, I want to jump into the quick Q&A so that we can get to the questions from everybody. Um, The first question is, what are you reading or watching right now?
1: Okay, watching. Actually, uh, I have been watching a TV series called Rami. Rami with yeah. a Y
0: at the end. Have you watched yeah. it? Not, not only have we watched it, we've had people from the show on the series.
1: Oh, really, really. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it very much. There were some, uh, some uh, I didn't like so much, uh, but uh, then it got better. It gets sometimes uh, a little bit uh, on the nerve. But I think he's, he's brilliant. Really, Rami is brilliant.
0: That's great. Uh,
1: book, yeah, yeah. Book-wise, I'm reading a Japanese uh, writer. Murakami is his name. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's the first book unfortunately I haven't read him before and I'm reading you know his uh, book called Colorless it's Mm. about coming of age of four young uh, uh, teenagers and one day they decide the the four of them were very close and one day one of them the the three of them decide they don't want to talk to him anymore Okay, and he's all his life trying to figure out that he's amazing he's really amazing I don't know if you read
0: Him, Uh, I haven't haven't read him. I know of him, but I haven't read him. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Nineteen eighty four, and or not nineteen eighty four. He wrote a no,
1: no q Q eighty four something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay,
0: who would you shadow for a day, uh, past or present?
1: Well, okay, actually, I would like to shadow an Italian chef.
0: Oh, which one? (laughs)
1: Uh, okay, I am terrible with name. His name is Massimo Bottera. Yeah, Doctora yeah, Massimo. Bottera. Massimo, of uh,
0: you he's know one, want, Yeah, his, he, he's the one who did the um, uh, he did the uh, Parmesan cheese. Uh, uh,
1: after, bravo, bravo! Yes, and, this is the one. You know, during yeah. lockdown when I was in Ramallah, yeah. he used to do projects every night. Uh, you know, and he's from Modena he's bravo he's from Modena exactly yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. actually um, my mom wasn't a great cook and I haven't been a great cook so now I'm getting into cooking at <laughs> the age
0: okay I, I <laughs> await your, your cookbook
1: yeah yeah so it's that's him I'd years. like to spend actually a, a day with him
0: <laughs> to learn um, okay what do people most misunderstand misunder- about your work
1: hmm Two things. Yeah. Um, the first thing is about conservation, really. Yeah. Many people who um, many people think that when you do conservation work, that you are against development, you are against modernity, you are against. They assume so many things. You know, it frustrates me. Back in Palestine, it's like. Why do you want to keep these ugly little buildings that remind you of poverty and what have you? So I think this uh, this sort of misunderstanding is uh, sometimes annoy me. The other one, which is different, completely different, is uh, Reward in particular is a collective work. Really, it's a collective work. And um, I don't say it out of modesty, out of reality. I have Uh, 15 to 17 architects who go every day in the sun. Uh, You know, in Palestine, it's not easy to move. Uh, They spend hours in the sun, in the checkpoint, and they come back. And what I don't like is people keep saying, uh, you're you know what I mean? As if it's a shop of mine. And uh, I have left Rewak since 2011. I stopped being the director of Rewak. Part of it is to make this point that what is important is to establish an organization so. and the success of it, if you leave it and it, it continues to be. Actually, when I left it, it became better even. Uh, so, I don't Very like wise. the fact, you know, in the Arab world, it's always personalized. Um, they don't give credit to the people with whom I work. And um, I get frustrated, you know, like if there is a, a, a something I have to make the phone call. Uh, uh, people, ah, oh, but you invited us, but you didn't call us. So, they always assume that it is my mm. personal work. In reality, it's a group work, a collective yeah. work. That's great. That's what they misunderstand about it.
0: Okay. Um, Whose work do you admire or are inspired by?
1: Well, Mikey Afikra is an inspiration for me. Really, I mean it. I mean it. When I met you in New York, I was like, wow, this is such a great idea. And now six years later, I am even more impressed than before. Uh, There is another young man uh, called Ahmed al-Mallak, who is an Iraqi, who has started something called Jais uh, al in architecture. And I say it not because he gave me the price at one point. No, not at all. Because he's, he started it when he was 23 years old without any money. And, you know, because at Ruwak we always wanted to give Jais Ruwak Ruwak's price. But we always thought we didn't have money. This guy didn't have money. But he managed to, <laughs> he had the mind and the creativity to make one of the most, now it's becoming a prestigious um, award, without money. He started it, and, you know, by appreciating people, money is not always the thing. It's a prize that has no money in it, but we are all very happy to get it. And last but not least, of course, is Zaha Hadid, uh, the yeah. Iraqi um, architect, not that I am fond of all her works, but I am fond of her persistence. Wow. Um, Zaha, the late Zaha, Allah irham her, she was very adamant. And, you know, I knew her as a woman who did sketches. Nobody understood her drawings, actually. And she kept drawing doing these drawings that nobody understood them until a German... Uh, a German uh, Civil engineer understood them and, and, and uh, they did the first uh, building. She spent many years not being an architect. And I like that hard work adamant that she believed yeah. in herself. Of course, being a woman from Iraq adds a lot to it. And unfortunately, the fact that she left us also makes, makes her more valuable now.
0: This goes back to your point about how you're attracted to hard work more than anything.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay,
0: so I, I'm gonna open up to the questions because there are uh, many of them. Um, uh, Lutuf? Uh, yes, go ahead, please. Uh,
1: I would like to ask you about uh, the difficulties. To what extent was it difficult for you to train people to work with you on preserving the heritage, the Palestinian heritage in the villages? Uh, yeah. seeing that there are economic uh, uh, problems uh, in the area? Yeah. Well, it ha- I can tell you it hasn't been easy, uh, but I think uh, the power of it is I found many people like me who are, uh, they have meaning in it, they found a... a element uh, that we have to protect our cultural heritage also having an israeli enemy who's changing your land every day there are lots of pluses that make you do work but i i can tell you that it hasn't been easy uh, at the beginning uh, but slowly slowly i think people are were convinced. Municipalities started using these buildings. Uh, people started telling us they want them for private uh, uses, uh, restaurants. They, I think that we made a dent in people's perception of uh, uh, the use. We haven't reached there yet, I think. Uh, we had, of, of course, difficulty in uh, uh, we don't have any problem with financing so far because we have been successful, but I fear in the coming with uh, you know with the difficulties everywhere in this world as COVID, uh, maybe financial because it's an expensive um, process. Uh, the people are poor; they can't pay much, uh, so we have to raise the funds ourselves. So raising the funds is really not an easy uh, job. Um, But so far, I think working with people slowly, 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 you have to set examples. They have to see with their own eyes how the building was and how it became. And then it becomes a center for their kids or a center for their women. They have to benefit, the world benefit, I want to underline it. Uh, People have to feel that it is their project.
0: I'm going to ask Nia's question uh, very quickly, because it looks like she dropped off the call. But she said, um, uh, what is the challenge you meet when you build uh, up the villages and the villages? Do the villages still exist today? And when was the last time you were in Ramallah?
1: Well, I was in Ramallah a week ago. <laughs> Less uh, A week ago. Um, uh, the challenge. Yeah. Uh, Mike, can you repeat the first part of the question? Sorry. The
0: first was um, broadly, um, what are some of the challenges and do these yeah. villages still exist today? The yeah, yeah. The
1: village, observing? okay, maybe I confused the audience. Uh, the Israelis demolished 420 villages that exist in in the occupied territories that became Israel, but the 400 and villages that we are working on are on the West Bank. Uh, so yes, they do exist. However, okay. Uh, many of their historic centers are uh, being uh, destroyed by the Palestinians, being destroyed, meaning left to uh, collapse. So what we do, we have something called preventive conservation. We do support the structures so they can last for another 20 years. Uh, so they do exist, yes.
0: Okay, great. Ibrahim, um, you are up next.
1: Uh, Yes, good evening,
2: and uh, thank you so My question is selfish. I would like to know uh, the time lag between your uh, your incident when you went with the workers and you uh, you felt uh, certain things about that uh, eighteen-hour journey. Yeah, and to write the book, how long it took
1: you to decide to write the book, and what immediate. Oh. Immediately, immediately. You know, it was such a strong impact. There are books that you think about uh, a lot, for example, My Damascus, I spent time, it has been with me for a long time, But this book actually. I am, and I could have told you I started the first night. Really, I was so tired, but I was so touched by these workers. So I did it right away because there was also a lot of conversation with these workers that I wanted to put in. Uh, They have a very different relationship to Palestine the one I have, uh, you know, because all the workers told me, you know, you have a salary at the end of the month, you don't have to risk your life because sometimes we sort of uh, uh, idealize, you know, you don't have to work in Israel, you don't have to do this. And he says, you know, if you have six kids, you don't, you know, you have to accept any kind of work uh, you can. He says, and we were shot at and we had to go back and hide. Uh, he told me, I can't go, I can't face my kids without having, uh, you know, a few uh, dollars in my pocket. I simply cannot go home. Uh, so you find out how difficult their life is and then you start, oh my God, you know, like sometimes we academics or intellectuals or uh, uh, do a lot of theories and uh, the people who have to face reality have a completely complete rea- different reality than ours. But immediately I wrote it. Do you advise people yeah. when they have a good idea
2: and emotionally attached to something like this, they should act on it directly or
1: there is timing it, for different things? Okay, it really depends. It really depends. First, for, for example, in my case, when it is, uh, let's say it's a family story that you know and it's with you and you have lived it and it's about your childhood or growing up, I think you could wait, wait. Uh, but sometimes there are two books that really force themselves on me. Murad Murad is one of them, and my last book, uh, I have written a book that came only in Italian called The English Suit and the Jewish Cow, and uh, that also was a story that I've heard from a woman in Jaffa and I just couldn't, uh, I was actually in the middle of writing another book. I left that book and started writing her. Sometimes I get so moved by people's lives. Maybe my life I can wait on. Other people's life I cannot wait on.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Um, sure. Deline, do you want to go ahead?
1: Sure. Hi, Swad,
2: It's a pleasure to see you again. Um, Thank you. I'm in Los Angeles, so this is morning inspiration for me. I love it. Also, before I get to my question,
1: Vivian Sansur is texting me. I told her I was on this call, and she says, hi to you, and lots of kisses. <laughs> Thank you, both of you. Thanks.
2: Um, OK, so my questions are simple. They are, are you working on any projects now? And how have you been getting through quarantine and this year?
1: Okay, I have just actually, I am uh, in Italy. I ran away uh, from Palestine and miraculously I made it to uh, Italy this week. And the reason I came here is one of my new books that I just mentioned. Uh, Actually, I haven't started. I was in the middle of a book that I left for this one, for the English suit. Uh, So I am still uh, under this... uh, under the shadow of this uh, book. So I'm not, uh, I don't have quite a project right now. Writing
0: project. And uh, how have you been handling quarantine these days?
1: Well, actually, I became a great gardener. I always liked gardening. (laughs) Uh, My garden, I can send you some photos, guys. My garden was the main beneficiary, and my husband was very happy to see me out of the house. Uh, So I spent it doing gardening, really. You should definitely send us photos. I will, I will. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Suat. Sure, sure, so sure. Thank you all. More
0: questions. Thanks, Deline. We have, um, thanks, Dalin. We have uh, Anton and then we have Gaumingu. I think I said your name correctly. Anton Traddad.
2: Hi, Suad.
1: Hi. Uh, I- by the
2: way, I was at AUB at the same time we were there.
1: Voila. Well, uh, yeah, do I look I- that young like you now? Let yeah, me see. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also, I met my future wife there.
1: <laughs> ah, great. The AUB is great.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was a re- really very formative period, culturally. Absolutely, Culture absolutely. Yeah, it was a great time. Uh, my question is relates to the conservation education. Sure.
1: Hmm.
2: Uh, is there uh, enough uh, conser- education related to conservation in Palestine universities? Is there room for more? What kind of education do you think uh, might be uh, required? Is it... Uh, at the postgraduate level or uh, at the uh, you know undergraduate level is it diploma or is it uh, full degrees what, what mm. kind
1: of okay i think uh, i'll start with the second, with the last uh, you know what triggered my interest in uh, in uh, conservation was a course i took it at the american university of beirut a day professor uh, raghat uh, he did something called uh, Lebanese architecture and there is a book called Architecture uh, in Lebanon, uh, Professor Raget And actually, that's where I started my interest. We used to go to the mountains, to the villages in the mountains, and draw houses uh so the undergraduate was what triggered in me so that's why i say that you need an undergraduate is to let people know unfortunately most of the universities that i went to or also i thought at, uh, at the university they don't have enough conservation uh, courses uh, but later on i think you have to specialize for example i am one person who did not specialize conservation in the sense of uh, technical aspects, uh, but many of the people who joined the uh, REWAK later on went uh, to do uh, uh, special courses on theory and preservation and stone and wood and what have you. Uh, so I think an undergraduate course or two courses is necessary, but then one has to do, uh, um, you know, master's degree, I think, uh, on conservation at the higher education.
2: Mm-hmm. Is there something like that now in Palestine?
1: Not really. I mean, we have uh, courses on, indige- on Palestinian indigenous architecture, but we don't have a master's or anything like that. The only thing we have students who come and work uh, during the summer uh, in conservation, and they consider it part of their uh, summer school, uh, the universities. But I don't think we have enough, no. The answer is no. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Palestine is full of historical things.
1: Uh, you know, absolutely, absolutely. I also want to say something that we at Rewak are trying very hard to get to Lebanon now. We have a project. We are trying to get in touch with Jad uh, Tabit uh, and other people uh, to, uh, to send few of our architects, even if they are symbolic. Uh, we know that the Lebanese have very good architects and very good conservation architects, but uh, we Palestinians would like like to just uh, uh, show a sign of uh, support for what happened in Lebanon. So uh, you might see some of our architects in Beirut.
0: That's great. That's wonderful. Um, we have one last question that I think if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask on your behalf, just because I'm going to broaden it a little bit. Um, there's questions about where we can find your books in Beirut ah. or in Saudi or in other places. Oh. They're translated to, you know, some of them are translated to 20 languages. Um, hmm. Where can people find your books in general?
1: Okay. Many of them are online, actually on Amazon. And some of them are e-books, so it's very easy to get them. Or if you have Amazon services, you can get them. Uh, They're in English and in Arabic. Um, Sharon and my mother-in-law is in Arabic. Golda's left here is in Arabic. Um, the, the, uh, Dimashki, my Damascus. Um, uh, I think I would start with Amazon and have a look at Saad Amir's book, and then you go from there.
0: Great Um, Saad, thank you so much for doing this Um, this is a really special episode for me, Um, you've been such an inspiration to me for so long so it was really great to have you on and thank you to everybody who joined and Saad, anything last, any final pieces?
1: Yes, yes, thank you so much really, really Mike I can't stress enough how much I am admirer of this uh, idea, Fikra and I would like to tell the audience that we're going to start a, a chapter in Palestine, in Ramallah. And, uh, no, no, no,
0: no, I need to correct you. We're not going to. Ah, we already started the chapter. We
1: already started because I left no. and I haven't been following. You know more about it than me no, now. We right? already
0: started. You got the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was so much uh, fond of your work still. And I really think it's great for young people to be connected also that the borders are closed everywhere in the Arab world. I think also to be able to meet one another all over the world is is absolutely important. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mike. Really, I (inaudible) love you.
0: Thanks so much to everyone who joined. Inshallah, I get to see you soon.
1: Inshallah. Bye. bye. Thank everyone. you. Thank you so bye, much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye everybody.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.